Today we're continuing in our series through the Gospel of John, which we're working our way verse by verse through it. And uh, today I'm really excited because we are talking about one of the more crazy stories in the Gospels. All right, It is Jesus getting a little angry, getting a little upset, and uh, wrecking some, uh, reaping some havoc. It's going to be good. Uh, today I'll be reading in the ESV version. You can follow along on the slides behind me or in uh, your Bibles or in your Bible app. Let's read John 2, verse 13 through 25 is our text for today. We'll read that, pray, and then uh, dig into it. All right. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the, body of his, about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the d- dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly father, thank you so much for giving us your holy written word, which is without error. And you gave to us to know you, to know your, your love for us and to guide us in all manners of life. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. God, I, I pray right now that as, as I know that all of us are coming from different types of weeks. Lord, some, some in this room have had a rough week. Some in this room have had a good week. Lord, some are here questioning things. Others are here confident and excited and ready to tackle life, Lord. But you meet all of us where we're at. Lord, you love each one of us exactly where we are at. Lord, if we're struggling, if we have sin in our life that is, seems too hard to get past, each person here, Lord, you know where they're at. You love them dearly. And this is your word, and you have a message for each person here today. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you into this room to move. We know you're everywhere, but we invite you to move we, more importantly, invite you into our hearts to reveal the truth of Scripture here. God, I pray that you would anoint me with your Holy Spirit to preach in a way that glorifies and honors you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is quite the story, isn't it? We have Jesus getting a little bit angry, right? It seems like a lot bit angry, and he's flipping tables and stuff, and... Um, when you have kids, you have to watch a lot of kids' movies, right? One particular movie that my son enjoys and his 
um, cousin or my niece really enjoy. It's like it was one of their favorite for like a good six month season was the Trolls movie. Okay, um, and first off, why do they put such like violent like concepts in movies? Right, because you have these one species, these they call them the Bergens, and you have the little trolls. And the Bergens eat the trolls to feel happy because the trolls are always happy. The Bergens are always sad. So the whole entire premise of the movie is that the Bergens are trying to eat the trolls to feel happiness. It's just such a violent like thing for my son to be watching, but he loves it. I, don't, I think he loves it because it's colorful and there's a lot of singing and so forth. I think Justin Timberlake does one of the voices. Uh, you know, so they like the songs and all that. But I'm like, man, this is violent stuff for a kid. Anyways. There's one of the characters, one of the trolls. He's like the only troll who isn't happy. He's, he's paranoid. He has a bunker. He's paranoid that the Bergens are going to find them and eat them. All of the other trolls, they're just overwhelmed with joy all the time, happy, partying. And there's a scene where it's just like a montage of clips of him ruining parties. And every time he runs in and flips over uh, the cake or flips over a table of dishes, right? And he's like, the Bergens are coming. The Bergens are coming. And then he even runs into like a funeral and flips over the casket. And he's like, the Bergens are coming. The Bergens are coming. Because he's paranoid. He's terrified. So Jesus has this moment uh, where he runs in. And he's not saying the Bergens are coming. But he's just flipping over tables and, and everything like that. So this is, this is the text. Actually, can we, I know it's further in the slides, but can we jump forward? I, you guys, hold on. Wait. I have some real pictures of this moment. I have a connection, and he was able to get me some pictures from 2,000 years ago when this went down. You guys ready? First one. This is my favorite one, okay? This is my favorite one because this is probably not at all how it happened. Because Jesus here is so casual. Like, this is the least angry Jesus I've ever seen. And he's just like, he's almost like doing it sarcastically or something. It's just like... It's the best one. You got another one? I like that one. I like that one. That's cool. And you got another one? Boom. It's like red. It's fiery. Okay. All right. Thank you, Lizzie. I'm sure you guys didn't expect that. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> let's, uh, let's dig into this scripture and, and uh, see what we got. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So this is the biggest holiday of the year for the Jewish people, for the Jewish religion. Um, it was started in Egypt when they were slaves in Egypt, and God was freeing his people in this process, trying to get the Egyptians to let the Israelites go. The final uh, curse against the Egyptians was that the angel of death was going to come, and every firstborn child was going to die. Unless they killed an innocent lamb and put the blood above their door. And all the families that did this, all these Jewish families that did this, the angel of death passed over them. And they did not have to suffer the consequences of death. They were freed from that. And the angel of death passed over them. This was a representation ultimately of what Christ has done for us. Christ is that animal, that Lamb, the perfect one who was slain on our behalf, and his blood covers us so the penalty for death is passed over us, those who are washed by Jesus' blood. This Passover for the Jews um, was the most important holiday because it was what finally allowed them to be free from Egypt. And they celebrated it. 
but it's important to us as Christians to to look at the Passover and see the symbolism that was there for Jesus to come and be that ultimate lamb that because of him, death passes over us, and we do not have to face the penalty for death. So they're celebrating this holiday. Um, and so Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, as you would as a Jew. You would go to Jerusalem, and you would participate in the Passover festivities and so forth. John 2.14, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Okay, so what what is going what's going on here? Why are they selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and why are they changing money? Well, the temple had said we're only going to accept you know the local um, currency. So for all those who were in other parts of the country coming into Jerusalem for the Passover, they have to exchange the money. And what they were doing was they were ripping them off on the exchange, two hundred or even three hundred percent. So they're getting totally ripped off. They're using this religious thing as a way to get rich off of the money changing, off of the, off of the uh, currency exchange. Not only that, part of what you would do at the Passover is you would bring a sacrifice to God. Uh, if you were rich, you would bring an ox. If you were middle class, you would bring a sheep. And if you were poor, you would bring a pigeon. So they're selling these animals. But those Animals, according to the Levitical law, had to be without blemish, without spot. They had to be inspected by the priests. And any animal that they didn't approve was not approved for sacrifice. So what they did was they were not approving any animals at all. They were instead saying, here are the pre-approved animals that they sold to the people at a ridiculous rate. So they were again taking advantage of them, and even taking advantage of the poor. The reason that the poor could bring a pigeon or a dove was because they could possibly go catch it or something like that. It wasn't something that they had to own like you would with ox and sheep. That was a sign of wealth were ox and sheep, but a poor person could find a pigeon, catch a pigeon, buy a pigeon for really cheap, but generally, and still come and participate in the sacrifices. Yet here, the religious leaders at the time were taking advantage of the people and even the poor. They're ripping them off on the exchange, and they're ripping them off on these pre-approved animals for sacrifice. So with that context, we see why this is a big deal, why Jesus is upset. Verse 15, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen, and he pulled out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. To be fair, I don't think that Jesus was whipping people. I think he he had the whip of cords to whip the oxen and the sheep out. You know, you would chase the animals out. I don't think he was whipping the people. Maybe he was. That seems a little bit violent. But uh, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he's pouring out the coins flipping tables it would have been a sight to see you know i think here jesus at this time this is at the beginning of his ministry and oddly enough the other gospels record another time where jesus does the exact same thing um two years later at another passover time and so jesus does this two times but this is the first time this is right at the beginning of christ's ministry and he's just started calling disciples. We don't know for sure here how many disciples were following him yet. It could have still just been those original six. 
Right? And as I think it's very early in his ministry. I think it's probably just about the first six disciples or so following him at this point. And I wonder what was going through their minds. Because as we've been going through the book of John, we see that John the Baptist had proclaimed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Savior. So they start following him. And they gather a few others. And there's about six of them, seven of them. And they're following Jesus. Right? And okay, so he's doing signs. He's, you know, it says that he's doing other miracles. We don't know exactly what. Probably healing people. But uh, and he turns water into wine. That's a good miracle. Like, like, I mean, as a disciple, you're following Jesus, and you're like, okay, like, did we make the right decision? Are we following the right guy? Wait a second, he turns water into wine? Heck yeah, we're following the right guy. But then, Jesus comes to the Passover, they're following him there, and they're seeing a totally different side, right? They're not seeing the party Jesus, the guy who can provide uh, wine miraculously, this guy who who's... Uh, the star of this wedding because he miraculously provided wine. No, they're, they're seeing Jesus who flips over tables, has a whip, who's angry, who, who is calling out the highest religious leaders of the time and saying, you are in sin. This is wrong. You must stop it. This is Jesus that calls out for repentance. This is Jesus who takes out wrath on those who are taking advantage of God's people, who are taking advantage of the poor. I wonder if they saw this and they kind of went, oh, I didn't see that side of him coming, right? I didn't see that side coming. Continue reading. This is later, John's telling us that later the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume you. For the first thing that we need to know here is that this was prophesied. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy by cleansing out the temple, by calling out the religious leaders and fighting um, against injustice. This was prophesied in multiple places, uh, such as Psalms. The disciples later realized that this was something that Jesus had to do to fulfill prophecy. This was a part of the role of being the Messiah. But more than that, it tells us something about Jesus. It says that zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus cares about the temple. He cares about the gathering of the people. He cares what that looks like and how it goes. That's why there's so many books of the Bible that talk about how church should be done, what church practices should be like, what our community should look like. Because Jesus, listen, cares what the church does. He cares a lot. He wants it to be a place of humility and love. He wants it to be a place where we come together for worship and loving one another, not a place where the gospel is used To take advantage of people. Where it's used to take advantage of the poor. The gospel isn't to be sold as a get rich scheme. It's not to be sold as something um, less than what it is. Which is God Almighty coming in the flesh dying for sinners. This has to be the focus when we make it about getting rich. Or selling get rich schemes. Or taking advantage of the poor. Let me tell you Jesus hates it. That's why the Bible talks so much about the community in Scripture, why um, and and how we should do church. Because zeal for his house will consume him. He cares a lot about it. 
So the Jews, right? These are the Jewish leaders. Say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It's interesting that they don't say, why are you doing these things? They say, what sign will you show us for doing these things? They know it was they knew it was wrong. They knew it was wrong. They knew what God had said about how the temple practices should go. They knew it wasn't okay to have animals in the courtyard. They knew it, but they were getting rich off of it. So they're not like, hey, saying, why are you saying it's wrong? They know it's wrong deep down. They're saying, what gives you the authority to do this? What sign will you show us to prove your authority? And Jesus answers in a very profound way. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They're like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? You're like, we're going to destroy the temple, and the sign's going to be that you raise the temple in three days? What the heck are you talking about? They respond, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and it will raise it up in three days. And then he said, or sorry, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So here's the thing. The question is, what sign will you give us for your authority to do these type of things? What sign will you give us for your authority to call out sin? Jesus' response, my death and resurrection. My death and resurrection. John 22, uh, 2.22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believe the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Jesus said, where all the authority comes from is the gospel. My death, burial, and resurrection, this is where my authority comes from. I am the savior of the world. Right? John the Baptist, when he was pointing out Jesus, didn't just say Messiah. He didn't just say savior. He didn't just say king. He didn't just say God incarnate. He said the lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God. That means the one who would be slain. He's referring here to the Passover Lamb. The prophecy of the one who would die for our sins, but he also rose conquering sin and death. This gives Jesus the authority to say what is right and wrong and to call people to repentance. The cross, the resurrection is what gives Jesus the authority. And listen, church, it's what gives us authority. Because Jesus says when he commissions his disciples, all authority has been given to me. Go therefore to the world. Preaching in Mark 16 says, or making disciples, Matthew 28 says. He has all authority. And we go out and we preach the message of the cross and the resurrection. Because Christ has given us that authority. Because it is, because it, because it is that message that gives us the authority to say what is right and wrong because Jesus had to die for what was wrong. He had to die for sin. He had to bear the penalty. And he rose again, forgiving us of our sin and offering us new life in him and even eternal life in heaven. John 22, or 23, 2.23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So he doesn't tell us what other miracles he performs 
after cleansing the temple. But he performs other signs, other miracles. He was probably healing people. And it says that many people believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But it says this, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Some are confused by this passage. What does it mean? People are believing in Jesus, but Jesus is not entrusting himself to them because he knows their hearts. What it's saying here is that Jesus fully knows the extent of the human condition. Jesus fully knows the extent of our sin. More than that, Jesus can look at each individual. We see this many times in the gospel. And he knows exactly what they're thinking. He knows what's behind the words that they're saying. He knows what they're really believing, what they're really thinking, not just what they're saying. And so Jesus says here, many are believing. They're professing that they believe in my name, but I see into their hearts and I know they're only believing because I healed them. They're not believing who I truly am. They're not really ready to surrender their lives to me. They're just believing because they can get something out of me. The sad thing is I think there are so many today who do believe in Jesus because they want to get something out of Jesus. Right? And the church, listen, today's we're talking about injustice. Jesus gets straight up mad when people are taking advantage of the poor. And let me say right now, there are a lot of churches selling get-rich screams in the name of the gospel. There are a lot of churches that are taking advantage of people to get wealthy. And Jesus hates it. Jesus sees into the heart of those who are doing those things and those who follow Jesus because they're hoping to get something out of it, not because they really see who he is and believe in the cross, believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see this is true. Jesus gives us the parable of the sower. You know, it's a passage that I've been meditating on a lot as we've been doing this REACH initiative, and we're sharing the gospel with people, and we're trying to disciple people, and we're, we're seeing people you know, that who are having real breakthrough, and we see people who, they say they want to follow Jesus, but they just don't really. They just don't really want to. They like the idea of maybe going to heaven, but, but they don't really want to surrender their lives to him. And the parable of the sower, we see the seed is scattered. It's the same gospel message. And it seems like some people receive in that parable, but many are choked out. Sometimes the devil comes and snatches it away. Sometimes the, it starts to sprout, but it's killed by persecution. When, when things get hard, they abandon Jesus. Or sometimes it's the cares and temptations of this world that choke them out. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Jesus knows the heart of each individual. He knows what's in everyone's mind. He knows what's behind the words we say. And so they said they believed. But Jesus knew that they didn't really John ten fourteen it says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So the thing is, it needs to be a relationship with Jesus. He is the good shepherd. 
We need to have a relationship with him. And he says, I know who are my sheep. And my sheep truly know me. There's a relationship there. It goes both ways. So, looking at this text, I see three ways that we can fight injustice. The first is in our heart. Jesus here is talking about the hearts of man. He knows what's in the heart of man. We can't fool him with our actions. We can't fool him with our words because he looks deeper than that. He looks straight to our heart. He looks to our mind. He tests it and he knows what's there. So the first place that fighting injustice has to begin is in our own hearts. And here's the thing. I I fully believe that our church should follow Christ's example. We as believers should follow Christ's example of knowing we have the authority to say things that are wrong and call them out. We have the authority in Jesus Christ to do that because he gave us that authority. So we can look at something based upon his scriptures and the Holy Spirit who speaks to us and say, that's wrong. That's injustice. And in fact, I would say that the church should lead the way in this in the world. But here's the thing. It has to first start with our hearts, our own heart, because it's one thing to tweet something. Right. It's one thing to get all social justice on Twitter or on Facebook, but it's another thing for you to allow Jesus to come in and say, that's pride right there. That's selfishness right there. That's that's a problem right there. Let me flip it out. Let me chase it out. Flip it over. We have to allow Jesus to work on our own heart first. All right. Jesus said, before you go and pull the speck out of your brother's eye, you've got to take the plank out of your own. So, have you invited Jesus into your heart to flip over the tables of pride and selfishness, to chase out the lust, the greed, whatever it may be that you struggle with? Have you invited him into your heart to truly chase out the sin? To flip over all those things that shouldn't be there. Let it begin with you. Because it is so much easier to point out the flaws of others than it is to look at your own heart. Amen? The second area we can fight injustice is together as a church. It's been a weird two years, hasn't it? 2016, 2017 were weird. I think we all realize that. And I'm not going to get into a bunch of political stuff, but the whole thing was weird. And the more I look back on it, I think it's weird. And I have to say I'm a little bit ashamed of the way that the church managed a lot of it. I'm not saying who you voted for was right or wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. Just some of the stuff that has come up in our society right now and then the way the church has reacted to it has been weird to me. Listen, I know that there are certain groups pushing certain agendas 
that sound good, and we always see through it, and there's a lot of mistakes in it. But that does not mean that the church should not be the leaders fighting against racism, fighting against sexual misconduct, conduct, fighting against those who are abusers. We should not be on the back end of this. We should be at the front end leading the way because we have the authority to do so. Because Jesus gave us that authority. We have more authority than anybody else in the world to call out racism for what it is. We don't need to join certain secular movements and follow their agenda. We can say, no, we have the scriptures of God. We know that God created all men equal in his image. We can say that racism is wrong. And we have the authority to do so. And we should never be on the back end of that. We should always be leading the charge. Billy Graham in 1967 was working alongside Dr. Martin Luther King. The most influential evangelist was at the front end of the civil rights movement. Not at the back end, criticizing how some of the stuff was being done. He was at the front end of it, leading the charge alongside him. When it comes to sexual misconduct, and it comes to um, women who are being abused, and verbally and physically, the church should not be on the back end of this. Am I right? We have the authority to say it's not okay to say that. It's not okay to do that. More so than the rest of the world. God loves all sinners, victims and abusers. But we always should side with the victims. I'm not going to mention, but there was a certain political figure, and the church was taking his side as the abuser. And the most messed up thing I've seen. Because we wanted to get a vote. And yet we claim that God is sovereign over the governments. Well, which one is it? Is God sovereign over the governments? Did he appoint Obama and Trump? Or is it us? Are we the ones who are in control? Because I thought God was sovereign. Yet we're saying we we have to vote for this abuser because of a vote. It's messed up. We should be at the front end of the Me Too movement, not at the back end of it. I am proud to say our church has, has done a lot. We're a small church, but we have many who have volunteered in the Redeemed Ministries fighting against sex trafficking. That is amazing. Our church has been able to support people in that. We've been able, financially as well as a small church, we have supported that ministry. We've done um, multiple events and given money to Syrian refugees. And we hope to do many more things to fight injustice. Amen? Many more things to fight injustice. Because Jesus gave us the example that you have to fight against injustice. You always side with the victims in these cases and not the abusers. And Jesus loved those who were taking advantage of the poor. He loved them and he died for those sins too. But when you're going to stand for something, you don't take their side. You stand on 
the side of righteousness. You stand on the right side um, of what's right and wrong. Church, we can gather together. And when we're ridding sin from our own hearts by the power of Jesus, allowing him to cleanse us day to day. When we come together, we can be a force in this city. Because God has given us that authority. We are not weak. We are strong because it's Jesus who lives in us. It is the Holy Spirit who empowers us. And we have the right because of the cross, because of the resurrection to say what is right and wrong. Because we are given that authority by Jesus Christ and he gives us his word to guide us. So we can stand up and we can be the voices who say this is right and this is wrong. In racism and sexual abuse in abortion. It's just crazy that we are divided in this political environment. Um, where it's almost like you have to pick which injustice you're going to fight and which one you're just going to say is okay. Why do we have to take political sides, church? Another thing, I've been reading a lot about Billy Graham, right? He just died, 99 years old. The dude lived through both world wars, was the greatest evangelist. He led 3.2 million people to the Lord. About, I can't remember if it was 2 or 3 billion, doesn't really matter. People know his name and have heard his messages. That's insane. The guy has so much influence. And you know what? He worked with Democrat and Republican presidents. And Billy Graham called out what was right and wrong on both sides. He didn't just allow sin on one side because he happened to like that side maybe a little better. He said, no, that's sin too. You need to repent too. He fought against injustice without political parties, without an agenda, just simply based upon the word of God. That's what I love about Billy Graham. We can be that type of church. We can say that's, that's wrong. And we have the authority of God to say that. Listen, in the third way is in society. And I think people try to jump to this one first. Right? Let's fight injustice together as a society. How well is that working? Right? Like, a couple of the events that happened in the last couple of years, I was like, what year is it? Is this the 1960s or even worse, the 1860s? What is going on? Society is broken. Humanity is sinful. So if we're going to make a positive impact in our society, it has to start with ourselves, our own hearts, right? Before you put a red X on your hand saying, I stand against sex trafficking, ask yourself, are you watching porn? Because that only fuels it. Right? Look at your own heart first before you step out and say what society should be like. Before you jump on Twitter, help a person. Before you get online and say what's right and wrong, check your own heart. Look at who's around you and help those people. And then together as a church, when we are realizing our sin, repenting of our sin, 
And then stepping out and fighting against injustice, saying what is right and wrong because God told us we could. We will have a positive impact in society and we will be the ones who lead the way fighting injustice. All in the name of Jesus. All ultimately so that people will see that Jesus loves them and that he was righteous and good and it's only through him that there's true and perfect life. You know, Jesus says he knows what's in the heart of man. I don't think ever more than, I think now more than ever before, we know more about humanity. Right? We, we look at psychology. We've made a lot of advancements. We understand the patterns of the mind. We understand um, what affects people's thinking more than we ever have before. You look at genetics. We understand that DNA has an influence on things. And, and though we know more than we ever have in the history of humanity about humanity, we still don't have solutions. The last hundred years have been the most bloody years in human history. And that's with all of our technological advancement. That's with all of our psychological advancement. And we still are looking at a humanity that is broken. Because just because we understand more doesn't mean we know the solution. As a human race, the only solution for sin is Jesus Christ. And the gospel message that he died and conquered sin on our behalf. And raised so that we could be new creations in him. If you allow Jesus to sanctify your life you allow him to cleanse your life, there can be serious transformation. There can be freedom from sin, and you can have a huge impact in the world. Billy Graham, when he was born, was just like all of us. He was born into sin. He was born a sinner. Yet, 99 years later, he's a man who we look at and say, wow, what an example. Billy Graham focused in on Jesus only. The last decade of his life, they asked him, what would you have preached more about? Every single time he he responded to the cross. And they look back and they're like, that's pretty much what you talked about mostly. And he's like, I would have only talked about it. He said, because the cross, that's where the power is. He said, there's no other answer for sin than the cross. There's no other answer for the human condition than the cross. He said he would have only preached about the cross. He allowed God to cleanse his own life. He had a huge influence in in cleansing the church. And he had a huge influence in society because of it. I mean, think about it. He was influencing, I think it was every president from Truman to Obama. Wow, that's crazy. Again, Let it begin with you. Let it begin with us.
And then we'll go together and we'll make an impact on society. Are you guys with me? We want to see Jesus change lives. We want to see Jesus change the city and our nation and the world. I keep, you know, I, I love that we meet here in this room because I look at these flags every time we're here. And I just think, Lord, would you allow us to send somebody to each of these places to share your good news? Right? And we look around, we're like, how are we going to do that? I don't know. We're going to preach the cross because that's where the power is. I don't, I don't have any other answers than that. I've tried. Right? We've been trying to do church stuff and figure it out. And you know what? I'm coming to the end of myself saying, I just think the power's in the cross. It's just in Jesus. That, that has to be it. So we're going to preach the cross. We're going to preach the work of Jesus. And, we're, and because of that, we're not going to be ashamed to say what's right and wrong. Because the cross gives us that authority. Because Jesus died for our sin. He died for sin. That's how bad sin was that God incarnate had to die for it. For our individual sins, for the church's sins, and for all of society's sin. Jesus had to die for it. But he's also the one who redeems us, who transforms us, who works all things out for good. So there's hope. There's still hope for us as individuals, as a church, and as a nation, as a city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your son. If there's anybody here today who's still wrestling with the idea, maybe, maybe they're wrestling with some doubt. Maybe they're wrestling with sin, God. Lord, it is not by our works or our strength or our might. It is only by you coming in. You doing the cleansing. You doing that work. We need you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that in this moment, every single person here would genuinely invite you into their heart. If it's for the first time or the 1,000th time to cleanse out some more stuff that shouldn't be there. Lord Jesus, this moment we see that it is only you. You are the only answer to the human condition. You are the only answer to our sin. You are the only answer for eternal life. It is through you alone. And all of that was centered on and accomplished on your cross, which you laid your life down. Thank you, Jesus. We love you so much. Lord, in this moment, I hope I could speak on behalf of our church and say, we invite you in. Cleanse us. Clean us out. Empower us to go and help others to make a positive impact on our city, nation, and world. In Jesus' name, amen.